Well, not too long ago, I started reading Little Pilgrim's Progress to the kids at night, and I've been reminded once again how John Bunyan's famous allegory of the Christian life is so profound. The original Pilgrim's Progress centers on a man named Christian. He's living in a city named Destruction. And one day Christian starts reading this book. It is the Bible. Reading it makes him feel the weight of this heavy burden on his back. He comes to the conviction that both his soul and his city are headed to judgment. Then he meets a man named Evangelist who tells him the way to a better country. There is a celestial city ruled by a good king who can take his burden away. The Christian decides to flee the city of destruction and seek the celestial city. Evangelist told him that he must first seek the narrow gate. That is the entrance to the way of the king. Just getting to the narrow gate proves difficult as it's filled with danger and difficulties and doubts. Finally, though, he arrives at the narrow gate. He passes through. He sees the king's highway. It is narrow. It's straight. leads all the way to the city. Goodwill meets him and tells him where he must go next to have his burden lifted. He goes to a hill, hill of difficulty. Atop the hill, is a cross, and at the bottom is this open, empty tomb. And as he sees the hill and starts to ascend it, and he looks upon the cross with tears streaming down his face, he feels his burden unstrapped, loosened from his back, and it falls off, it tumbles down, it rolls into the empty tomb, and it's never seen again. Christian feels the peace and joy knowing that this this king has given him rest and life. At this point, Christian is visited by three shining ones, representing angels. The first says, your sins are forgiven. The second gives him new clothes. The third gives him a scroll that is sealed that will assure his entrance into the city. Christian has found rest for his soul. But by no means is his journey over. You get to this point, a third through, you think, this kind of feels like it should be the ending. But it's really just the beginning of his pilgrimage, his journey. Christian now belongs to the city of the king, but he doesn't live there yet. And getting there will be a long, difficult journey through dark, hostile territory. The land before him is filled with opponents and servants of the wicked prince. How is he expected to make it? Many would-be pilgrims don't. Now granted, they don't pass through the narrow gate. They don't go to the cross. But nonetheless, how are pilgrims to endure the long road ahead and arrive at the celestial city? That is essentially the same question we have this morning. And to the Bible reader, Bunyan's allegory, it's obvious, but helpful. When you come to saving faith in Christ, your, your burden is lifted as your sins are forgiven. You're justified. But then what? By the promise of the king, your place in heaven is assured, but you don't live there yet. Instead, we we find ourselves still living in a present evil age. This is dark, hostile, enemy territory filled with trials and temptations and opposition at every turn. And so how then are we to live? That is our question this morning, prompted by our study last week. Last week, we undertook a special Bible study to try and understand the times whereupon we see spiritually dark times around the corner for our nation. But we learned that shouldn't entirely surprise us because overall, we're living in a present evil age. That's how scripture calls it. Galatians 1.4, this is a present evil age. 
Thankfully, there is an age to come. We found out scripture consistently divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. And the age to come is defined by righteousness. It's everywhere seen to begin with Christ's return. But this present age, however, is not righteous. It's literally called evil. It's characterized by sin and rebellion. It's dominated by the sons of disobedience. And then scripture says it's ruled by the devil, whom scripture calls the God of this age, the ruler of this world. Again, it's not all bad news that Christ's first coming broke the power of the devil over believers. Like Galatians 1.4 says in full, that Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age. And that rescue begins at salvation. When we come to faith, we're, we're transferred, we're rescued from the domain of darkness, we're transferred to the kingdom of Christ. But like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, we find ourselves still living here below. We're made members of the age to come, but we're still living in this present evil age. A long pilgrimage lay before us. We ended last week on a hopeful note, though, namely that our, our ultimate hope is the coming of Christ. We saw this golden thread throughout Scripture frequently given as that the ultimate source of the believer's hope on his journey, that either going to Christ or seeing him return, it keeps us going. In all, our study last week aimed to build a consistent biblical worldview, one which would equip us to understand the times we live in, specifically at the, this time between the two comings of the Christ. And this worldview, in turn, enables us to interpret history as we see it, past, present, even future, recognizing Satan's schemes while persevering as lights in the darkness. But as we kind of teased last week, there was one part of this worldview that, that needed further attention, namely our response. It's one thing to, to understand the times. It's another to know how to live in the times. How are we to live in this present evil age? What does God expect of pilgrims they come to salvation in Christ, they're not in heaven yet, how are we to live? If this really is an evil age ruled by the devil, how, yet we belong to the age to come, how are we to conduct ourselves? That is what we want to discover this morning. We need, we need a set of marching orders. Like Christian, we've received the forgiveness of sin. We've, we've got new clothes, we have the scroll of life. Yet there's a long road ahead going through dark enemy territory. Like what has the king said about how we are to conduct ourselves on this pilgrimage? What's, what's our mission? 2 Corinthians 5.9 says we have it as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. What we want most now is just to honor this Lord who died for us. So how do we do that? another way of asking, what is his purpose for our lives? We pray his will be done. What is that will? What is his purpose for our lives now, here below? Why did the Lord leave his church behind? Do you ever think about that? Like, as, as soon as a sinner is converted, why is he not immediately translated to heaven? Be far easier, no pilgrimage required. But why has God left us to live in this present evil age, surrounded by many threats to our faith? God certainly has a purpose in this, 
And he's uniquely glorified when we understand the times and then rightly respond to them. And this morning, we want to come back and just nail down that response a little bit further. And so, in addition to gaining a, a biblical worldview for understanding the times, for living in a present evil age, that was last week. Today, we want to add you might, what you might call a, a biblical handbook for living in this present evil age. How then should we live? We can't be exhaustive, but we can try and be helpful. So I have here four marching orders for living in this present evil age. You could add more, I'm sure, but for the sake of time and and to be concise, four marching orders for living in this present evil age. And so let's begin. The first, be lights. First would be to be lights. And just to start, I do feel compelled to reaffirm and double down on the one point we made last week about how we should live in this age, that our main duty and privilege as believers living in this present evil age is to live as lights. It's just the light versus dark metaphor is strong throughout the New Testament, and it's used to distinguish the people of God from the world. For example, Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or darkness. You notice the language. Children of light. Sons of light. Sons of day. It's all this familial language. None of us start off as children of light. We owe our status to our Heavenly Father who has made us. By, by grace, he's adopted us into his family. God is light, 1 John 1.5. That makes us children of light. God is free from all evil and error. And, and so now as we take on the family name, we should start bearing the family resemblance. We are to walk in light. We are light. That likeness is perfectly uh, represented in human form in Christ Jesus. Which is no wonder why he came saying, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. It is this Jesus who died to forgive us of our sins. And in so doing, that's how he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his kingdom, Colossians 1, 13. In so doing, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's Colossians 1, 12. So you, you can see like this light, dark theme is, it's, it's everywhere in scripture. And you can also see that for us in Christ, being light, it's not just a thing we do. It's not just a task added onto the list. It's, it's a very part of our identity in Christ. Being a light, it's not optional. If you are going to follow the light of the world and become a, a child of light, just, just operating as light is who you are now. By definition. Now, that being said, being children of light does come with one necessary function. Like, lights are made to shine. They're, they're made to illumine darkness. That's their function, and, and that is the case for us as well. And it's not hard to say that this is the main reason the Lord left his people behind in this dark world to, to reach it as light. You can listen to 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is the light of the world. He's like the sun, the source of all illumination in a dark world. He calls us to be children of light, little lights, kind of like the moon. And we are to reflect his light, his glory to this dark world. He aims to, to use us as his witnesses, mirroring the light to those who still live in the darkness. You want marching orders for the church, you recall Matthew 5, 14 through 15. Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Like light is made for darkness. It's kind of the point. Svalbard, Norway. I think I'm saying that right. Svalbard, Norway. It's called the land of the midnight sun. And that it's so far north that in the summer months, the sun never sets. It comes down and kisses the horizon, but then just bounces back up. It's daytime, 24 hours a day, from April 20th to August 22nd. And during that time, the streetlights don't turn on. For obvious reasons, lights are made for the dark. And likewise, it defeats our identity and our purpose to hide our light, to not go to the dark, to put it under a basket. And Christians effectively do that when they don't talk about Christ, when they blow gospel opportunities, when they don't wear their faith on their sleeve, when at work they just try and blend into the world, where they just flee the world entirely, move to some part of the world that's not so dark. But let us not malfunction like that. Any impact the church will have on society is going to be a function of its effectiveness as lights. No lasting reform is going to come through human means, mere politics. Only as the dead are born again by the power of the gospel will any nation change. And that is a function of God's sovereignty working through the church who is being faithful as lights. Why don't you open your Bible? Let's go to Acts 26. This is a survey this morning looking at a lot of scriptures, but I want you to pay attention to a few. Acts 26, because this gives us one of the greatest examples of, of a faithful light, one of Christ's most faithful witnesses, the Apostle Paul. And his testimony perfectly illustrates how we are to live in this present evil age. Acts 9 records the conversion of Paul, formerly known as Saul. Acts 26 is Paul retelling his own conversion story to King Agrippa II. Maybe you're familiar with this story. He recalls beforehand how his, his life was steeped in self-righteousness. As a Pharisee, he was trying to destroy the church. He says, verse 13, he recalls his Damascus experience where a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone all around him. That light was so bright, it blinded Paul for three days. Paul was blind, but for the first time ever, he could see, he gained spiritual vision, eyes of faith. Before you could say that the gospel was veiled to Paul as Satan blinded his mind, preventing him from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's what the devil does. But on the road, God, in turn, shone in his heart to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That's what God does. And with his eyes open, Paul responds with faith, with repentance. He was the greatest persecutor of the church. Now he'll become the greatest witness of the church. And indeed, he recalls in verse 16 that the Lord appointed him a witness, a minister to all these things. He's to be a witness, a light, specifically or especially to the Gentiles. But to what end? Verse 18. I want you to just look at this one verse. Verse 18. This is his mission as a light to do what? To go to the Gentiles, verse 18. It says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what he heard from the Lord. And what a perfect summary for all witnessing. Like the lost, they're in darkness. They need to turn to the light. The lost are in the dominion of Satan. They need to be transferred to the kingdom of God. That only happens one way, by faith in Christ. And that only happens as they, they hear the gospel, this offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who trust in Christ. And Paul proved to be faithful to his calling, and so must we. You are not called like Paul to be an apostle, but we all share in this function as lights. That's for every disciple. And you, you, this purpose flows from our identity. So don't hide your light. Don't silence the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't censor yourself because of the pressure of the darkness to not speak. No, rather, open your mouth and let others around you know just what great things the Lord has done for you and his offer in Christ. Christians love to complain about dark times, but don't love as much to do the one thing that will change things, namely evangelize. And so let's be faithful to live as lights in this present evil age. Now, tied at the hip with the witness of your words is the witness of your lives. Scripture often directly correlates the brightness of your light in the darkness to your personal holiness. Therefore, a second marching order would have to be be holy. Be holy. I said, and we're not trying to be exhaustive this morning, either in breadth or in depth, but at least here I have to show you how holiness is, is certainly given as like a prime directive for how every pilgrim is to conduct himself on his journey, to live in this age as a Christ follower. And especially in relation to our function as lights, holiness, you could say, largely determines the, the brightness of our light in the dark. <clears throat> there are some Christians who live lives seemingly indistinguishable from the world. They walk in darkness. First John 1 John 1.6 says that I would call into question whether they really know the God who is light. Certainly, though, their lack of holiness renders their witness ineffective. What are they witnessing? Certainly not the new birth and a changed life. And then when they finally try and share the gospel, those in the world shut them down as hypocrites because, like, you do the same things we do. You can turn over now to Philippians chapter 2. This theme of holy living in this present age, again, it's all over the New Testament. 
As you're turning, I'll read for you Titus 2, 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You also have 1 Peter 2. We read 1 Peter 2, 9, God saved you that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's no coincidence that he says right after that, 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So there it is again. Here we are. We're, we're aliens. We're strangers. We don't belong to this present evil age anymore. This world is not our home, but we're still here. So how then should we live? He says, keep your behavior excellent. It means honorable, distinguished, set apart. They may still slander us as evildoers, but their accusations won't stick. They have no force. And such a witness of Christ-like love and humility, sacrifice, service, virtue, they will impact the loss. They will hear Christ from us. They will see Christ in us. And some, by God's grace, will, will believe, will glorify God on the last day. Dozens of passages say the same thing. Oh, something about the second chapter of books of the New Testament have this theme. But Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, now for the sake of time, Philippians 2, this is just another perfect sample of our marching orders. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of, of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. It's pretty straightforward, but look, here we are again. We're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The word for crooked, we get our word scoliosis from that Greek word, something that's bent out of shape. The way of the Lord is always straight, narrow, sure. The way of the world is is warped and twisted and crooked. It offers you pleasure, satisfaction, even heaven, but only ends up delivering death. As for us, how are we to live? He says we are to prove ourselves blameless, innocent. We're different. If you think above reproach is only being for an elder, you're wrong. We're all to live lives beyond reproach. We don't live like them any longer because we have a different master. We're no longer sons of the father of lies. We're children of God. So we should resemble him. That's why he says a lot in First Peter throughout, especially in chapter 1, be holy as God is holy. We are called to be holy just like our heavenly Father is holy. And you can see how this is tied to our role as lights in the world. You must be distinct, set apart, and holy for that light to shine in the darkness. We're not talking about a witness of self-righteousness where where you associate the straight and narrow with, with legalistic rules and hypocritical le- living. 
But we're talking about witnessing to the world with our, our lives, really the, the fruit, the, the product of new birth, the power of the new birth, which will be seen in, in meekness, humility, brokenness over our own sin, love for God, love for others, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just let them see the display of, of Christ. And Christ's righteousness, and you'll watch your witness amplify. I don't think we need to labor this point long. It, it's, it's simple, but, but be convicted. Think of the unbelievers in your life, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors. Would they know you're a Christian by how you live? Or would, would they be shocked to learn you're a Christian by how you live? Do you keep quiet about the things of the Lord because you know secretly your life doesn't Back it up. Look, if needed, repent and return to Christ's narrow way. We all stumble in many ways. None of us walk this road perfectly, but by grace and by his spirit, we are to be striving to model Christ-likeness in this crooked generation among whom we appear as lights. It's vital to our role as lights. This is all part of being a martyr, which is what every Christian is. Every Christian is a martyr in the original sense of the word. The Greek term martyreo means witness. Every time you see the word, well, most times you see the word witness in the New Testament, it's the Greek word martyreo. All Christians are Christ's witnesses. We are all called to be his witnesses or martyrs. Now, of course, you know that in the early church, so many of Christ's witnesses were killed for their faith. That martyreo or martyr came to refer to those who witnessed unto death. And that's how we think of martyr today. That is not often today the cost of following Jesus, but it might be. But the true disciple is ready to follow Christ and be his witness, whatever the cost. And those who remain holy and unstained by the world, the Lord has ways of just using them the most to impact the world. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and faithful notably come upon a place called Vanity Fair. It's a city called Vanity, and it holds a fair year-long. And so it's referred to as Vanity Fair. And it's filled with every lust and pleasure and treasure the world has to offer. And long ago, the wicked prince shrewdly built this city right on top of the king's highway such that all pilgrims have to pass through it on their way to the celestial city. And he often finds it way more effective to distract and divert the affections of pilgrims away from the king to the things of the world. Way more effective. So as Christian and faithful pass through Vanity Fair, they stand out. They talk different. They dress, they're dressed different. They clearly don't belong to this city, and they have no interest in its wares. They're not buying what Vanity Fair is selling. But this, however, upsets the people of the town. They see how Christian and faithful are, are holy and righteous. They're not self-righteous. They're just genuinely Christ-like. But it enrages them, much like it did with Christ. And so that they mock them. They're taunted. They're slandered. A mob forms. Christian and faithful are arrested as if it's their fault. They're then beaten and put into a cage as a spectacle for all at Vanity Fair. All the while, these two pilgrims do not respond with evil or slander. They're kind, they're gentle, they're good. And this enrages the people even more 
So they demand their death. And Faithful was sentenced to death first. He was beaten, lanced, stoned, and then burned to ashes at the stake. But Christian saw... Christian saw a chariot with horses receiving Faithful, taking him up through the clouds. He truly was a faithful pilgrim unto death. And having satisfied their rage, Christian was eventually released, and he resumed his pilgrimage. He leaves the city. But as he's leaving, someone from the city runs out to join him, and his name was Hopeful. He'd been watching the example of Christian and faithful, and he, he knew they were good, they were holy, they were righteous. Meanwhile, he knew he had been caught up in the lusts of the city. He knew he had gone astray. He knew the city was wicked. But even though he just watched faithful die, that he, mo- he hoped he might find his same Savior. And this is the power of, of a holy, Christ-like witness. And if you think this is merely fictional, that the early church and the Reformation era are filled with such real-life examples. Modern evangelicalism would rather set up a booth at the Vanity Fair. You have to join the world. You have to be like them to reach them. But no, we aim to please our Savior and be used by our Savior. And both happen when we are holy lights. And really, these first two marching orders go together. We are to be lights. We're to be holy. We're to be holy lights. This is how we will reach this world on our way through it. Now, given that this age is, in fact, evil and dark, it's filled with enemies and allurements like Vanity Fair, Christians had better walk with their eyes wide open. So this leads to a third marching order. Number three, it's kind of a two-for-one, but be sober and alert. Be sober and alert. Too many believers treat the Christian walk like a stroll. It's not a race. It's not a battle. It's not a pilgrimage. It's a casual stroll. As if there's no rush. There's no danger. There's no need to be so serious. In fact, they view other Christians as zealots. Like, you you Bible Christians, you're all just so uptight. You take everything in the Bible so seriously Can't you just like lighten up? Can't you make church a little more fun? And look, there is plenty of time for rest, for recreation. The Lord knows how to give relief and respite to his people. But if you confuse the Christian walk overall with a stroll, you're sorely mistaken and will have a hard time. Why do you think the Bible chooses different metaphors for this life? Like an arduous marathon race or a battle Pilgrims need to know that the road to the celestial city is long. It goes through dark, hostile enemy territory. Trials and temptations and opponents abound. If you fall asleep at the wheel, you're you're going to crash. This this explains this repeated standing order throughout the New Testament of just wake up, be sober, be alert. Be sober, be alert. All over the place. Flip now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just to the right a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And these two terms often come as a pair. Be sober, be alert. They're related concepts. 
It seems like whenever the New Testament writers want to just sum up how we are to live, give us like a one-verse marching order, one or both of these terms has a way of showing up. For example, 2 Timothy 4, 5. He says, you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 gives us both together. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. All over the place. Now, you have this word for so, uh, sober. It's nepho in the Greek, and originally meant like not being intoxicated. When you come under the influence of alcohol, you're not in your right mind. This word then came to refer to those who were, were not intoxicated in their thinking. In other words, clear-minded, level-headed, sober-minded. That's what this word means. Alcohol tends to make people belligerent. But the thing is, being drunk, it's the worst time to pick a fight because their reflexes are delayed, their senses are dim, their thinking is diminished. That's why drunk people always lose fights. And so it goes with Christians. If you're, you're, you're daily up against the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you're not sober, if you're going about in some spiritual stupor, not paying attention, you're going to get knocked out. Likewise, as he says, be alert. Second term is gregero in the Greek. It speaks of just staying awake. Like, literally, don't fall asleep. Be watchful. When in enemy territory, you can't sleep. Or if you do, someone better keep watch. Because danger might emerge at any moment. And why do you think it's always been a military tactic to attack at night? When an opponent sleeps, their armor is off, their shields are scattered, their sword is gone. They're off guard. That makes them easy prey, as Gideon found out with the Midianites. And so spiritually, you, you must be awake and watchful at all times. You see, both of these terms paired in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is a, a key passage using the light-dark metaphor to contrast believers with the lost. It has in context that the future day of the Lord and the coming judgment upon the world and so listen, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, Get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Those living in the world, they're unaware of the coming judgment. Why? He says that they're sleeping. They're, they're in a spiritual coma. It's always been that way. Every example in Scripture of judgment, the lost are always caught off guard. They never see it coming. Why not? Just they're, they're in a, you can tell them all day, but they're in a spiritual coma. They're asleep. They're blind to spiritual reality. And this is why God's judgment always surprises them. As for us, though, God has awakened us by his grace, and you better stay awake. It is not time for us to sleep as others do. It's still darkness. It's still dark out there, and we are to be alert and sober. 
as Christians, we do not fear the day of judgment any longer at all. We've been delivered from it. But we know that so long as it's still nighttime, our path is filled with many tripping hazards, trials, temptations. Your circumstances can change in an instant. So if you're not engaged, if you're not sober and alert, you're bound to be caught off guard. You'll trip, you'll stumble in the night. You want a quick example? Just take the greatest blessing and curse of our day, which would be the internet. And now with it, social media. You use it to do work, to learn something, to talk to others. That's all good. But you all know, like the internet and social media, they're they're vanity fair at your fingertips. It just takes a few wrong clicks and you're there. So what if you hop online or you pick up your phone, you start browsing. But meanwhile, your guard is down. You're not being sober-minded. You're not alert. You're not thinking spiritually. Just kind of going about your day. You're in a stupor. But in a split second, you might encounter some temptation. So what will happen next? Will you stand? Will you fall? Has this happened to you before? And far better to be always alert, always sober. What this means, living in a present evil age, is that your minds have to be always on. Which I know, it is terribly exhausting. But you you can't shut down. Your minds have to be always on. I guess unless you're physically sleeping. But this is warfare. You have to be alert to spiritual issues 24-7. We are to be anticipating temptation at all times. You have to evaluate all things through the lens of Scripture. Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's our hope for the future, his return. But for the present, be sober in spirit. But that's tied to this first phrase. He says, prepare your minds for action. Literally in the Greek, it says, gird the loins of your mind. That's an idiom. It pictures an ancient man tying up his outer garments or robe as he prepares to run or fight because they would hinder him. You must not disengage your mind. Tie up all the loose ends because this life is a race. It is a fight. Prepare your minds for action. You have to understand that the battle in this present evil age is for your mind. All this battle imagery in Scripture, like what kind of a war are we in? The answer is a truth war. That is how the enemy has fought since the beginning, like the very beginning. He works by assaulting the truth, getting us to believe lies, and that, that takes us out of the race. If I can evoke Pilgrim's Progress again, early in his journey, Christian came, uh, came across three would-be pilgrims, but they were off the road and they'd fallen asleep. Their names were Simple, Sloth, and Presumption. They had no urgency in their pilgrimage, but were caught up in slumber. And while they slept, unbeknownst to them, an enemy had come and shackled their feet. They didn't know. And when Christian tried to rouse them and warn them, they didn't care. They had no interest in their predicament. They were quite comfortable in their complacency. Simple said, I see no danger. Sloth said, yet a little more sleep. And Christian knew that any moment the one who prowls around like a roaring lion might come upon them and they'd be easy prey for his teeth, but they could not be bothered. 
May it not be so for us. We must be always alert, always sober, never sleeping. And speaking of this type of spiritual warfare, that is one of the main reasons listed in Scripture for this constant watchfulness. 1 Peter 5.8, I remember I read it, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why does it say that? The full verse. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is why you must be of sober spirit and alert, always. During our pilgrimage, the three main enemies of our soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our flesh is fed by the world, the spirit of the age. The world, in turn, is controlled by the devil. His schemes lay behind all deceit we encounter. And because of this, we need to take our response one step beyond simply being sober and alert. We need to include number four now, be steadfast. Be steadfast. For this, we have to go to Ephesians 6. So turn there, Ephesians chapter 6. From our biblical worldview that we built last week, we learned that this present age is so evil because it is ruled by the God of this age, Scripture says, which is the devil. His power over believers was demolished on the cross, but he still schemes and sifts and tempts and afflicts and accuses and tries to trip pilgrims, doing whatever he can to make them turn back or at least turn aside and rendered ineffective. Ephesians 6 has much to say about this. Paul himself uses this walk metaphor five times throughout chapters 4 through 6 to describe how we ought to live in this evil age. Ephesians 5, we didn't have time for it. Verses 1 through 14 are hugely pick up on the light-dark metaphor. But then you get to chapter 6. When it comes to spiritual warfare, which dominates this age, he purposely switches metaphors for emphasis. It's no longer about walking. It's about standing firm, being steadfast. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The real enemy of our souls is not of this world. Rather, it's revealed here and elsewhere, it's the highly organized demonic forces of darkness in the spiritual realm, with Satan at the helm. It kind of changes how we view things, right? Satan and his forces are at work behind the scenes. But, like 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul, likewise here, points out the schemes of the devil, It speaks of tricks and wiles, crafts. It's how he works to manipulate, to deceive mankind. I'm not big on conspiracy theories. Not because they're unbelievable. They're all totally believable. It's just that they're unprovable, they're unverifiable, and so it's a waste of my time to dwell on them. We'll never know for sure until the Lord comes, I guess. But, But know this. Behind all wickedness in the world, 
behind every false ideology, behind the spirit of the age, there is a grand unifying conspiracy, and it's not a theory. The schemes of the devil are afoot. He's behind it all. The battleground here is your mind. Because again, this is a truth war. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is not a physical conflict, but spiritual. Too many Christians wrongly think of spiritual warfare as if the devil is just trying to push them down a flight of stairs. But it's far worse than that. He's holding the world captive to falsehood, and he's trying to re-ensnare us in his lies. So from Vanity Fair to the spirit of the age, Satan controls the world, which allures our flesh. We still have the sinful flesh. How can we possibly prevail in such combat? Well, being a, a truth warrior, you'd better be steadfast in the truth. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, an important passage. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, where Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He speaks about how the enemy has established fortresses or strongholds. And he's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about ideologies, falsehoods, worldviews, other religions, philosophies, belief systems. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. You've got God's truth on one side and all aspects of satanic deception on the other. How do we contend such a a field, a landscape? Well, we employ our weapons. They're spiritual. They're powerful. We wield truth. We use the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to Christ, to obedience to him. Notice, take every thought captive. Again, you have to see, this is all about your thinking. Your thinking impacts your your feeling and your doing. It starts with your thinking. Satan is the father of lies, and the world that he has remade in his image is ensnared in his lies. The spirit of the age always sells his lies. Those in the world happily find refuge in these strongholds because they find escape from the truth claims of God which hold them to account. And so just consider the spirit of the age of our day, which you could say would be End-stage humanism and postmodernism, like stage five cancer of humanism and postmodernism. That our, our culture's thinking has become completely untethered from the ultimate reality being a God who made all things. That's not the ultimate reality to our world. That this, we see the world around us, there's a God who made all things. Instead, even by law, the only explanation of reality that can be taught in government schools is time and chance. The world we see around us is the product of time plus chance. That is the ultimate reality in our culture. And with such a, a view, life has no ultimate meaning and life has no ultimate value. That has consequences that have shown up over the years. How do you think abortion became mainstream? Like, what is life? We're just cosmic space dust evolved into a higher form. What is life? If a baby gets in the way of my personal happiness, why shouldn't I get rid of it? Why not? Who's to say? All that's left is hedonism. Might as well enjoy my time here. 
And so, of course, the dominoes of things like pornography, homosexuality, now transgenderism fell next. Why shouldn't they? What is love? What is gender? Absolute truth has been rejected. Personal relative truth has been embraced. All this, of course, is completely contrary to Scripture. But even just the claim of objective truth is hostile to this culture. They're tolerant of all things except the one who says they have objective truth. But Satan's schemes are behind it all. What is the Christian response to this? Well, we're going to go back to our first marching order. We're going to just continue being lights, speaking truth into the darkness no matter what. It's just, it is kind of hard to do when it seems, it feels like the bulk of evangelicalism is asleep. They have not been sober or alert. Many have seen no danger. That There's nothing going on out here. It's just a small compromise. There's no danger. A little more sleep, a little more rest. What's the big deal? Many have even been convinced to join the spirit of the age. I think it's safe to say if, if the church at large had been marching rightly, we, we wouldn't be in this situation. Still, it doesn't change our response today. We are still to be lights, to be holy, to be sober and alert, to be steadfast. And for all this, we need God's strength. Thankfully, it has been supplied. That was Ephesians 6.10. Don't gloss over it. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We're not marching here by our own power. We need his. And speaking of which, he has put much of his power in his word, in his gospel, this gospel message. And so as we renew our minds daily, we are strengthened. We stand firm. Notice verse 13 in Ephesians 6. He says, therefore, in light of this, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Romans 13, 12 tells us to lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. But nowhere do we get a picture of this armor more fully than Ephesians 6 here, verses 14 through 17, just skimming. Gird the loins of your truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Shod your feet with the gospel of faith, of faith or peace rather. And take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But think about it holistically. What is this armor about? What, what does it represent? And you should see that every element represents some gospel truth. We're using gospel realities to combat alternate realities, a.k.a. lies, Satan's lies. What, what is reality? It's the only way to be steadfast and immovable from the king's path. We need his scriptures, his word, truth to be our true north, guiding us uh, the way, all the way. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. May this never happen as our hearts and minds are fixed on the truth of Christ in love. You know, throughout his entire pilgrimage, Christian had many run-ins with various servants of the wicked prince. We already saw Vanity Fair. There was also a man named Demas, whom the wicked prince had stationed next to the way by a hill, a gold, or rather a silver mine named Lucre. 
He offers pilgrims all the money they need for their journey and more, all the money they could ever need. If they just step aside from the path, enter the silver mine, they can have it all, as much as they can find. Of course, those who enter never exit. There's also the giant named Despair who resides at Doubting Castle. He captured Christian and Hopeful after they had stumbled off the king's path a little bit. He imprisoned them. He didn't kill them. He set poison before them and told them it would be better if they just killed themselves because they're never getting out of his dungeon and the king will never accept them after all their missteps. And Christian and his companions come against so many more opponents, all these servants of the wicked prince, but each time they end up persevering and escaping. How? Each time. It is always by going back to the truth. Each time one or the other calls to mind some promise, some truth that they read in that good book, and it's enough to cut through the fog of deception. They see things soberly and clearly. They get back on the king's path. You and I must do the same. We need to finish 1 Peter 5.9. We've said several times we're to be sober or alert because the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking some to devour. But then verse 9 says that you resist him firm in your faith. It is our faith that puts the enemy to flight and our faith is fed by truth. If you want to remain steadfast, you'd better feed on the living word often. And going back to just a key verse from last week, Romans 12, 2. A great overall marching order. Do not be conformed to this age, literally age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and holy and acceptable. The enemy wants to subvert the mind. God wants us to renew it. We do that by daily dwelling and and feeding on the mind of Christ, which is the scriptures. You you better keep the the sword of the Spirit sharp every day. Sharpen the sword every day. The scriptures. We also renew the mind through devoted, watchful prayer. Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it the spirit of thanksgiving. And we do that by church fellowship. We actually renew our minds by the church fellowship whereby we encourage one another and speak truth to one another. It's so notable in Pilgrim's Progress that Christian always seems to have a traveling companion. And there's so many times he is filled with doubt or error. He has things wrong. He's about to go astray and one of his companions speaks truth to reel him back in or vice versa. But the role of the church companions, we're not meant to journey alone. This is not exhaustive, but I hope our time this morning has been helpful. That you need to understand and think through the times and then learn how to live in the times. This isn't all of it, but these marching orders cover a lot. To be lights, to be holy, those two go together. How we reach this world. We're not just traveling through, we want to reach and impact this world. We're holy lights. Yet we long for the age to come. We want to finish, and for that we need to be sober, alert, and steadfast. The Lord is using us to impact this world. He will call many pilgrims to himself through us if we're found faithful. So may we be found faithful and hopeful Christians, just like faithful and hopeful and Christian. Until the day we reach the gates of the world to come and we're greeted by the king who opens up 
and says, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. And let's pray. Our good and faithful God in heaven, you are the faithful one, the good one to us. For all you've done for us in Christ, our Savior. We think this morning about how we are to live in this age. And your word gives us what we need. It is the true north. We have the very mind of Christ here in our hands. May we not take it for granted. You've given us what we need to be used by you. And, and having been redeemed, having been bought with a price, we're not trying to repay you, but it is our delight, our, our joy now to, to serve you. You call us to walk faithfully. You call us to witness, to live as lights, to do so in a holy manner while always keeping our eyes open, being steadfast and immovable. We thank you that you've given us your power and your Holy Spirit to do this for on our own. Our striving would be losing, but we have all that we need in Christ, in the Spirit. I just pray you convict us this morning and, and, and keep us awake. May we not slumber. May we not fall by the wayside. Re-energize and reinvigorate all of our walks this morning that we continue to pursue Christ his purpose, his kingdom, his glory, his name, not our own. For any who might be asleep, who have not been awakened, even as they hear of this Christ this morning, who died, who rose, who can take their burden away, the guilt, the shame they might be feeling for all they've done, the sin against you, they can fall right off their backs, right into the empty tomb as they look upon the cross and see what the Savior has done for them. And by his work alone, they can be saved. So open their eyes like you did the Apostle Paul, and and turn them into holy lights for your name's sake. Be with us all as we strive until we we reach that, that final day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.